Hello everyone, Christopher Shagnon here. I just wanted to say a few notes before we jumped into the podcast. This month it is our pleasure to be joined by three of the producers from the documentary film series From the Cubby, Joe Spence, Nick Chamberlain, and Avi Betz-Heinemann. This is our first episode with three guests on simultaneously, and we had an amazing conversation, but also we had a very long conversation. So we decided to split it up into two parts. This is the first part, and the second part will be coming at you in December. Even if you haven't had a chance to watch the first film yet, that's okay. But if you would like to watch it before listening, or after, you can check out the information in the show notes below to find out how to watch it. We would also like to note that the person at the center of this first film, Martin, is of traveler heritage, and as such... We discuss this as a portion of the podcast. We highlight this because what is acceptable or offensive in terms of terminology referring to travelers can change from context to context. As such, we just wanted to put out there that some of our guests occasionally use a term which is considered offensive for travelers in Finland and other countries, but not necessarily in the context that they are coming from. We just wanted to give the audience a heads up about this before the episode started. So, with all that said, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And my name is Sophia hagalani Alba. This month, we are really excited to be bringing you a conversation that's unlike any conversation we've ever had before. Not only because we are going to be having a few more guests joining today, but we're also going to be touching on some topics and methods of storytelling that we have not yet encountered through our podcast. So we are having three guests total on the pod today. We're going to start with one of them. He's going to introduce himself, tell us who he is and what he does, and then he'll be bringing our other guests into the conversation. So, Joe, would you like to tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Joe Spence. I'm a doctoral student from the University of Kent, and my research addresses a tuberculosis outbreak that occurred in the city of Canterbury in southeastern England between the years 2016 and 2020. I didn't expect to be involved in medical anthropology. I hadn't read widely around the subject. In fact, when I started my PhD, I intended to be studying the circumstances of commercial trawler fishermen off the North Kent coast. Um, now, as part of my doctoral studies, I was invited to make a short film, just a 10 minute film, and to learn the various processes and technologies uh, of, of making what you might call an ethnographic film. Um, so I was spending most days of my week out on fishing boats and I was living in the centre of Canterbury, barely a stone's throw from Canterbury Cathedral. As you know, a historic Christian site of pilgrimage. And um, around that time, a man called Martin turned up on my doorstep. Martin was homeless and rough sleeping at the time. And he'd be on my doorstep most evenings, busking away, making a hell of a racket with a harmonica. Martin and I passed each other 
every single day multiple times a day and obviously we started getting talking and he started to tell me a bit about his life and I thought wow what a first and foremost a nice man a friendly man a funny man you know I enjoyed having conversations with him and I thought well okay for my this 10 minute film introductory filmmaking course I will sit down with Martin and record a kind of life history a life biography with him and that's where it all began At the time, I very much anticipated that I would do the film with Martin and then go back to my fishing project. Ultimately, it's six years later and I'm still trying to figure out what happened to Martin and um, make sense of the many, many chaotic things and oftentimes wonderful things that um, occurred over the next six years. In a nutshell, that chance encounter with Martin changed not only the direction of my research but the direction of my entire life it it pivoted in a very different direction what's really great is that we're sat here today having a conversation with nick chamberlain now nick was introduced to me by martin at the time nick was rough sleeping with martin in a sort of temporary makeshift shelter that they called uh, from the cubby And um, over this last six years, Nick, who has made the transition from being a research participant and film protagonist to being a co-director and co-editor, we've been working to tell the story of what happened in our lives over the following six years. We've been working together on that. And maybe, Nick, you'd like to explain uh, where you were at that time, circa 2016, living with Martin in the cubby. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Right, I'm Nick Chamberlain, and uh, I'm not from university. I'm sort of a comprehensive job right, who uh, has been introduced to university and the opportunities and wonderful people and uh, the platform that has enabled me to tell this story, if you like, and make sense of events and, and my own life and improve my own life very much. And, you know, uh, and it's still happening. But as Joe said, at that time, I was rough sleeping and had been for quite a considerable time, a good seven years at that point. I was uh, a hardcore drug addict, heroin and crack cocaine, which I used to mix together. They called snowballs because the quality of heroin wasn't good enough anymore. So I needed something just to give it a bit more. And me and Martin had become disillusioned with the services and the help that was being offered you know we we both of us uh, and at different times jumped through all the hoops that was asked uh done all the things uh that was asked and yet we never seemed to get any closer to getting off the streets so we just used to rely on each other in the end uh and some of the other uh what were called community even though one of the screenings, there was somebody you know, disputing the fact that we had community, but it, it was. But it was mostly, I relied on Martin and Martin relied on me to make the best of it and to get us through it together. And we did, you know, we really did. And the drugs made it slightly easier as well, you know, um, but also brought a, a lot of problems with them, one of which was... You know, ended up with like complications of drug addiction, I believe, led to Martin's death. Um, but it also 
led to me being in a, a very precarious situation where I was in danger of being physically hurt, you know, badly physically hurt. And um, as a result, uh, I reached out to Joe. We'd already met, we'd already done the 10 minute film and we got on with friends and I reached out to Joe um, and Joe helped me. And it was a very difficult time uh, that we got through together and started to try and make sense of what had happened. Because, you know, I'm sorry, I should have said actually at this point, when I reached out to Joe, Martin had already died. Yeah, um, and it was because we'd met, met at the funeral again. And that was why I tried to link with Joe again. Um, now, you know, we knew the story weren't finished. Even though we didn't know what the story or where it was going to lead to at that point. <laughs> and bloody hell, it's led to some real strange places. But as Joe said as well, some magical moments, you know. I mean, we really have. We've had uh, things happen which just seem to come out of nowhere. It's been great. And now I'm in recovery and have been for like a good few years now. Uh, and I'm confident in my recovery, which I've never had before. Uh, I've got my own little place. Um, I've got some good friends. Um, and I'm building a, a life. And this project is part of my recovery as well. But it's, it's also because uh, I felt you know, bad about uh, when I got my place that I didn't sort of take other people with me and help sort of them. but this is my way of giving something back as well so it's enabled me to to do do things which otherwise i wouldn't have been able to do and i can do it with good friends and have fun at the same time uh, and now even making friends abroad so you know it's all good all good yeah i'll hand over to abby now if abby wants to say something thanks nick i'll just mention my name's Avi. Um, I'm now at Helsinki University, but I help Joe and Nick with making sure that we get screenings and people who work in the kind of area of trying to address some of the challenges that Nick and Martin faced. And I really joined in whilst Nick was in hospital. Uh, I was a friend of Joe's and Joe came to me with you know this complex story of lots of different threads um, and trying to make sense of it and it's just such a moving story with so many ups and downs that I couldn't not be inspired to kind of provide any support that I could and I guess the kind of little magic that I bring is to try and help navigate some of the university systems um, and some of the events management and so I've ended up in the role as Nick calls me the tour manager and occasionally the golden goat. Just to round that little section off uh, I'll just explain so my PhD takes form it's got nothing to do with fishing not really anyway um, but it, it takes form uh, in the most part as a three-part documentary film series the series has three chapters the first chapter is called The Traveller's Tale which um, first and foremost is an attempt to describe Martin's life as told by him and also triangulated by um, people who know him through his life and family members. So it delves into his life and Nick's life whilst living in the cubby on the streets of Canterbury, just in this basically a makeshift shelter, a derelict porch, and it explores the circumstances around Martin's death. The second chapter of From the Cubby is called The Harmonicist's Tale, 
The Harmonicist's Tale is Nick's story, and it's called The Harmonicist's Tale because Martin, as his first Christmas present to Nick, gave him a harmonica, and Nick really learned to play the harmonica from that point forward. Um, and The Harmonicist's Tale begins with Nick and I meeting at Martin's funeral. Very quickly, I get a request from a local charity worker to help Nick out. Basically, Nick was in danger, uh, circumstances of domestic violence, while sofa surfing with a friend. And the charity worker asks whether we could, when I say we, myself and my former partner, Bailey, and my housemates in Canterbury, would put Nick up for a few days. Um, it was a very, very difficult decision. We did decide that we would put Nick up at our home for a few days so he could escape the violence he was experiencing. Um, what we didn't know at the time is that Nick had an active and infectious strain of respiratory tuberculosis, a strain called Microbacterium africanum. Nick was meant to stay with us for three days. He ended up staying for nine days. Over the course of the nine days, he became progressively more unwell. On the ninth day, he was rushed to hospital um, on the advice of the paramedics who attended and said if he wasn't to go to hospital, he had less than 24 hours to live. He was admitted to hospital initially with what was uh, sepsis. Um, a couple of weeks later, we realised that that sepsis was compounded with tuberculosis. And the Harmonicist tale, part two of From the Cubby, deals with Nick's treatment journey. So Nick was discharged into emergency accommodation from the hospital with the duty to administer a six-month course of daily antibiotics. Um, now, TB is a long and lengthy treatment. You've got to take your medication every day for that full six months at least. The circumstances of Nick's living arrangement, in a nutshell, did not meet his needs. We might be able to explore that later in this podcast. Um, but Nick relapsed um, and forgot to take 20% of his medication, essentially. And therefore, uh, he, he left his accommodation, which was completely unsuitable, and went to live with a man called Kevin. Now, Kevin was quite a vulnerable man 54 years old and his home had been taken over by drug dealers in a practice what we call over here cuckooing is where dealers take over the homes of vulnerable people and more often than not give them drugs uh, in exchange for uh, a place to serve up and deal drugs um, so nick abandons his accommodation goes to live with this guy kevin um, whilst not taking the full amount of his medication therefore becoming a public health risk as far as they're concerned. Um, ultimately, by the end of part two, um, the local authority makes moves to prosecute Nick under environmental health legislation, um, in particular a part 2A court order. So Nick gets forcibly quarantined in treatment facilities, firstly in a hospital for three months and for the next four months in um, supported living accommodation in London. In my view, Nick needed to go into supported accommodation upon his discharge from hospital. For all kinds of reasons and through no fault whatsoever of the NHS staff working, that wasn't available at the time. But finally, when Nick did get to go into a supported accommodation, so like a supported living residency, um, when Nick emerged, he moved into a council flat 
had the first opportunity, in, in my view. Nick, of course, chime in if you disagree with anything that I'm saying. But uh, Nick moved back into a council flat and um, shortly afterwards, um, COVID-19 hit. So ironically, Nick's been in forced quarantine in lockdown for um, more than six months, gets out. And a couple of months later, we're all in quarantine. And it was in that context that Nick and I essentially formed a bubble and edited part one of From the Cubby whilst in lockdown. Part three, we're calling it The Fisherman's Tale. It's called The Fisherman's Tale, basically in an ironic homage to my original PhD topic that never happened. <laughs> um, and The Fisherman's Tale is taking the form of, essentially as a, as a, as a kind of um, a, a research project and also a campaign where Nick, uh, Avi, um, the production team of Mick Bonington, Janine Wells, Bailey Saunders are screening the film in different locations around the UK and of late around Europe and investigating and making the case for new forms of healthcare initiatives um, that, for example, would enable um, high risk patients like Nick to have the best possible chance of recovery, uh, both from comorbidities like tuberculosis, but also to progress into stable housing, um, to settle in that housing and address what may be mental health issues or issues around addiction. So those healthcare initiatives um, for us take the form of things like overdose prevention centres. Well, I would have been able to pick up my medication as well, wouldn't I? If we had like things like that in place, you know, it would have made um, getting my medication a whole lot easier uh, and, you know, uh, lessen the chance of me putting an addiction before medication. Um, you know, so yeah, you know, but sorry, but yeah, yeah. So, just to, to to round off, basically, part three is being filmed at the moment, part one is finished, and you've watched part one. And we might be able to talk about part one today, The Traveler's Tale. Part two is halfway there. I would also add, as a friend of Joe's to start with, and I only became friends with Nick later, it was very clear to me, at least in my observation that in a country where the healthcare system is on its knees, if not worse, uh, and lots of different people trying their best to deliver the best care, the only thing that was keeping it all stitched together was essentially the care and kindness and attention uh, and friendship that had developed between Nick and Joe. Um, and so other friends of Joe's, including his housemates and his ex-partner and then later myself. You know, that's just the human element to this story, which is friendship is at the basis of just caring for each other and kind of providing that human uh, element. And I would say that the way that life is designed, that's quite a big pressure on all of us. We're also trying to you know, subsist and find money to live. And in a kind of normal situation, either people will have time to care about each other, A, or B, uh, professional services would be available to provide that support and care. Uh, unfortunately, that was not the case. And so this kind of journey is about people kind of filling in those cracks and coming together to try and make that work because we're all like solid, valuable human beings. So. Uh, that's what really inspired me as well. 
as a kind of secondary person. Also, Nick is really funny. <laughs> uh, I just want to say as well, like you talk about um, how much of Joe's support and friendship was, yeah, it was vital and uh, a big part of getting me to where I am today. Like, you know, I mean, I can remember that day sitting at the flat, Borough, where you're all on your laptops, on your laps and on your phones, trying to find somewhere where I could like go just to get off the streets. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a room full of like people who it was it, it really I got choked. It was like, you know, you didn't really all know me at that point. But, you know, the the compassion that was there that was yeah. I was, I knew I'd landed on my feet that day. <laughs> you know, and I knew there was yeah, you know, I I, I was gonna be all right somehow. Didn't know how. Or win, but yeah, I, I, I agree totally. I think you're right. It shouldn't boil down to that. There should be these things in place within the health service, but they're not. And you know, but and so many people, their lives are, um, well, uh, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're worried about finance, they're worried about mortgage, they're worried about kids, whatever. You know, there's so many other things that. You know, good good people who would you know would like to do good sometimes. Uh, they either don't know how, or they just haven't got time or resources to do it. You know, and it's uh, it just it, it shows just how how good sometimes people can be. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Avi. And of course, you know, our, our listeners will definitely recognize Avi's voice from last month's episode. Uh, if you want a bit more of an in-depth about Avi's background, you can go back to that. Yeah, thank you all so much. And I can say, too, like, you know, the way that I met, uh, you know, Nick, Joe, and Avi was by participating in this workshop that they put together at the University of Helsinki. I, I got to see the screening of the first part of From the Cubby. And, you know, it was just a really wonderful time getting to meet everyone. And, you know, something I'd, I kind of like to start out with a bit, I mean, going to that first part, um, this name that we've been batting around, Martin, who was Martin? I mean, it's, it's a big question to put into a thing and it's not even summarize somebody's life, but we keep mentioning this person. And I mean, I, I felt like just from seeing the documentary, like I got a good vibe of the guy, like a feeling like what he was like. So, I mean, what? One of you, uh, maybe Joe or, or Nick, I mean, and Nick, like you're the one who knew him best, probably, uh, like to tell us a bit about who Martin was. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I could talk all night about uh, Martin. I mean, very, very beautiful, kind, generous, uh, loving, like, soul. You know, he was, um, and a very, very deep, man uh, and he was on a, a, a spiritual journey or a, a search if you like he was he was searching for something you know something more and that's why he used to sit quite a bit in the in the cathedral um and we used to have long long talks about sort of uh, you know belief and mysticism and you know religion and whatnot and um but he was also even though he wasn't sort of uh, academically sort of uh, what would be recognised as clever or whatnot, he had like a hell of a lot of street smarts, but he had something more as well. He, he could like, he could see what a person needed yeah, and be able to somehow 
even though like living on the street, like both addicts, like you know, in what most people would call like horrendous situations or whatever, he could somehow pull together and stitch together what people needed. And they wouldn't always know that like it was Martin who had even given it to them. You know, it took me a while to realise sometimes that, you know, he used to do things which, you know, I, I thought I'd done. And then afterwards realised that Martin had like, set in motion, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, Joe mentioned about the harmonicas, you know. It was like, I mean, that's a gift that like, I, I've still got. He knew I, I loved music, but like, I had no confidence in it or knowledge of it. Or whatever. But So, you know, and he gave me just a, a simple instrument, which... I got joy from, and we uh, could actually make money from as well, you know. But it's something which I still use, and every time I play, I think of him, you know. And as I, as I improve, and I enjoy it, you know. I mean, I've I've jammed with like uh, Abby and like Joe, like one Christmas we was together, and it was it's one of my favourite memories, you know. It's so he gave me that, like, you know, that, not just the gift of the harmonica, but he's given me the gift that's still here. Um, but you know, he, he he had time for people, and it's just so special. You know, I miss him so much every day. I, I, I you know, but at the same time, I miss him. But I also am very aware that I was lucky enough to know him, even for a time, you know, and share that time. Um, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's, I, I'm not going to tell the full story, but it was um, just before getting to Helsinki, my, my passport hadn't turned up, you know. Um, and, like, you know, like, on the th on the Thursday, it was either the Wednesday or the Thursday night. I mean, we're going on the Tuesday, yeah, and the passport office and ain't even got the paperwork to start processing it, yeah? Yeah. And, like, you know, then it's got to still go to other departments, you know, to be... So, and, you know, it takes weeks, basically. Anyway, I had a dream where Martin and Joe were there. And, uh, you know, and Martin, the first thing he said was like, uh, oh, it's taking a bit of time, me, aren't you doing this film in it, boys? And I said, well, that's because you went and died on us. We're doing it all on our own. And we all sort of laughed. And uh, he said, well, that's why I'm here. He said, I can help you. He said, like, uh, I I've learned a few tricks now. He said, and I, I know, I know those who can, right? And I, uh, and he goes, everything's gonna be all right, Nick. Don't worry, right? He said, you're going to Helsinki. Everything's gonna be okay. And then he he put his hand out and he didn't touch me. He like put his hand in front of my chest in the dream. And he said, he goes, friendship don't end at death, Nick. He said, it's all, but everything's gonna be all right, yeah. And then. I woke up anyway, and I was—I had tears coming down my face, like, but like I still could feel that warmth and that love, and and I still believed it, even though I'm thinking it's, that's a dream. So I'm going to take from it just it was a beautiful dream, yeah. Anyway, next day I'm on the phone to the passport office, and uh, by this time, like, so I've been phoning every day for like you know the past couple of weeks or so, uh, and I like this is a guy who I'd got through to more than once and now I had an extension sort of thing. Uh, Vincent, his name was. I said, uh, I said, Vincent, I don't suppose there's any, you know, joy is there. He went, well, Nick, he said, we got the paperwork this morning. I said, yeah, it's all a bit, bit late though, isn't it? I mean, we'd already started talking about me just participating on Zoom level 
by this time. Then, you know, let Evie and Joe go in and me staying in England. He goes, look, he said, I've worked here for, I can't remember if it was like, you know, it was either eight or 12 years. He said, he goes, I've never seen this. He said, your passport, the paperwork's been done. He said, it's gone up to such and such office. It's being printed and it's going to be sent out tomorrow. I went, what? He goes, I don't know. He said, unless you are fleeing a war-torn country or you're a diplomat or you need a transplant or your royalty or one of the 1%, he said, this don't happen. He said, I don't know what happened. He said, but you're getting your passport. And sure enough, it was it came through the door. Uh, do you want to say a little thing about Martin, Joe? Yeah, um, okay, so... I first met Martin in 2016. Like I said, he was playing with his harmonica on my doorstep and we got talking. Um, uh, one thing we had in common was a, a background in youth work. And that was one of the things that initially got us talking. Um, I never intended to go to university. Uh, the reason I went to university is because myself family members and many friends around me all got made redundant in around 2010 in the uh, you know the first wave of austerity really in response to the global banking crisis i was a young person myself i was 20 but i was working in youth work let's say um and when i got talking to martin the first thing he told me is that he was a teacher and he said i'm 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 an informal teacher and Martin himself had been made redundant around the same sort of time, albeit in a different part of the country. Um, and that was what initially got us talking, the thing that we had in common. Um, the other trajectories of our life, you could say, are very, very different. Um, Martin was born in Ashford in southeast England, about 20 minutes drive from Canterbury in 1968. His mum, as Martin describes, was a Londoner. And his dad, as Martin describes, was a traveller. He was a, from a Romani gypsy background, making Martin what uh, Romani gypsies would call a, a didikoi, a half-breed. It translates something like that. Um, uh, so Martin was kind of in this in-between world between what we might call a settled society and this kind of Romani gypsy aspect to his life. He was born... I believe, on a caravan site in Hastings. Martin said he was born in a, in a gypsy vado. Um, some people contend that. I still haven't got to the bottom of it. Um, but nonetheless, he grew up in Ashford in a place that is known locally as the Gravel Walk. Um, Martin described it as a, a gypsy site where uh, the only people that were allowed in were other gypsies. Now, Martin described that until the age of eight, he lived solely on the gravel walk in a caravan. Um, having triangulated that story with people that knew him, um, that's not exactly accurate because the gravel walk was actually destroyed sometime in the uh, 50s, something like that. So before Martin was born. But nonetheless, there is a thread of truth in it that the gravel walk um, became the gravel walk when... Um, Romani gypsies were coming down to, to Kent to pick on Kentish fruit farms. Kent's known as the Garden of England and there's lots of kind of informal agricultural labour. Um, sometime around then, that's where Martin's mum 
who was coming from London also to pick on the farms, met Martin's dad, who was a Romani traveller picking on the farms. So they, they lived in Ashford. Martin's dad wasn't able to read and write. He was illiterate. So as you can imagine, for Martin going through his early years, he experienced severe barriers to education, which is quite commonplace for people coming out of travelling communities due to all sorts of complex historical layers of exclusion and in some cases persecution. Um, Martin, around the age of 17, um, discovered heroin. And um, again, triangulating this with other people that knew him was a heavy, heavy heroin user. Heroin was very, very frowned upon in the traveller community at that, like at that stage as well still. You know, um, so he, it was something which, you know, he, he you know, actually, he kept secret very much, you know. Um, and, yeah, it was like, uh, you know... <sighs> It was, it was more difficult for him than in sort of for me, in a way, being a heroin addict. Thank you, Nick. You've got me back on track. Drug use and heroin, uh, Martin would tell me, that was severely like frowned on his, in his community. And by and large, he was ostracised. He was thrown out of the travelling community. Um, and having spoken with other people from that travelling community in Ashford around that time, they uh, doubled down on the fact that, you know, drugs would not be tolerated. He experienced some spells in prison. Uh, when Martin got into his 30s, Martin described that he really wanted to address his heroin addiction and turn him his life around. And he wanted to teach young people not to fall into the same traps that he'd done through his life. He moved to Newcastle, which is a long way north in the northeast of England, and um, retrained as a youth worker and basically set up his own project. The project was called Positive About Youth, um, and Martin um, became a fully qualified youth worker and ran this project for a number of years. I can imagine from the barriers and challenges that Martin had had in his younger years, um, that mantle of being an educator and being able to help others was extremely valuable and extremely precious to him. Um, and sadly, in 2010, as I experienced in my own life, they shredded the public sector. Martin lost his job. Martin, having lost his job, was devastated, relapsed, moved back to Canterbury, um, had recently lost his brother who died in Canterbury, came to Canterbury in part to find out what had happened to his brother and potentially in part to make some kind of pilgrimage to Canterbury Cathedral. Canterbury, it's important to point out, is a historic site of pilgrimage. Um, people travelling to visit the shrine of Thomas Beckett, um, Beckett, former archbishop who was murdered in the year of 1170 um, and, had, and had a shrine erected in his memory. And um, twice a day, Martin would be begging or busking on the streets of Canterbury and twice a day he would go and pray underneath the shrine of Thomas Beckett. As so many pilgrims, if you can call him a pilgrim, have done in the past, um, to pray to seek help for their problems and pray for the wellness of others. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there for the time being. I'll just quickly jump in then and say that, um, you know, when you're saying about him going up to Newcastle, I mean, 
he really knew that, as we all find out when we're as hearing addicts, when you try and get yourself clean, as they say, if you stay in the same area, there's a, a good chance, you know, you're going to run into the same old people and just the same old haunts. So there's a, there's a much greater chance of relapse. So part of going to Newcastle was like to get away from that scene, but also to reinvent himself. Like, you know, he had no past and no faults or uh, history sort of, sort of thing, yeah? And the only resource that Martin had, as I said, you know, he wasn't academically sort of uh, qualifications or didn't have much of anything apart from like a bag on his back. But what he did, it was life experience. So he took the resources he had and reinvented himself and became the fantastic informal teacher, which he was. And yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was tragedy. They took it away from him. He was doing good. Thank you both so much for this uh, deeper contextualization of who Martin was as a person. And, you know, I apologize if this is uh, jumping a bit, but I noticed a few times in the conversation that, you know, we've said like Canterbury many times and, oh, this happened in Canterbury and the pilgrims coming through Canterbury. And I noticed that the way you've named part one, two, and three of your ethnographic uh, film project it kind of harkens back to uh, something that's quite literary. And I was hoping that maybe you could give us some insight into how those threads carry through the project and why you're carrying those threads through the project. So maybe that's something you could unpack a little bit for us. Right. Um, I think Joe will probably be the best person to do this bit. But just before he does, I'd like to say, because Canterbury is, uh, you know, it's known for the cathedral and it's known for this and known for that. But Obviously, um, the big thing, and has been for quite a while, is the Canterbury Tales. Now, it's become sort of um, almost like a, an in-joke or uh, a saying, if you like, amongst uh, street communities and addicts and things. When you're talking about uh, others or events, we say, well, you know, it's all Canterbury Tales which, you know, harks to, like, Chaucer and the, the Canterbury Tales. And you, you can't escape it. You know, if you're in Canterbury, it's it's part of the landscape, if you like. And, you know, um, so even right down to the, the, you know, the level of, like, street community and the addicts, right, they're using high literature to describe sort of uh, events and people and uh, the exaggerations, if you like, and uh, the embellishments. But or and sometimes you know they, there's truths, but wrapped up in Canterbury Tales. <laughs> so, but mm. I'll end up a joke. That was a really useful introduction, Nick. That was great. Um, yeah. So Canterbury, southeast England, became a Christian site of pilgrimage following the 1170 martyrdom of Saint Thomas Becket. Um, Becket was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was basically murdered by the king because he think, he thought that the higher power, the ultimate authority, was God, whereas the king thought it was the king, <laughs> the monarchy. So uh, Thomas Becket was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral in the year 1170, and then a shrine was erected in his memory. Uh, the shrine contained relics of Thomas Becket, and people from across uh, across Britain and quite soon across Europe and the wider world 
started to travel to Canterbury to pay homage at the site of Thomas Beckett and oftentimes seek miracles of healing. The, the shrine became synonymous with, with miracles. Canterbury remains a Christian site of pilgrimage today. So the original shrine of Thomas Beckett no longer exists in its original place. It's actually been moved upstairs. Um, but in its place, um, or at least above where the shrine used to be, there's an artwork that has been installed. Um, the artwork's by the British sculpturist Sir Anthony Gormley. And this artwork depicts a human figure or a human form, albeit a human form that is made out of nails. And the nails have been taken from the walls of Canterbury Cathedral and repurposed for Anthony Gormley's artwork. So to wind back to, to Martin, Martin would spend his days um, busking and talking and getting by on the streets of Canterbury. But twice a day, he would go and pray at the original shrine of Thomas Beckett, and he would pray directly underneath this Anthony Gormley artwork, which is called Transport. Uh, it, it wasn't always prayer, though. Sometimes he was just like, um, you know, meditations, if you like, um, that he would. He found a, a stillness and a, uh, an ability to think there, which he couldn't do outside. So, I mean, yeah, he did pray every day there. Um, but I think um, a big part as well was the meditations right, for, mm -hmm. for Martin. And, and perhaps it would it would come as no surprise that Martin very quickly got to know all about Geoffrey Chaucer's classic, The Canterbury Tales. Geoffrey uh, Chaucer wrote The Canterbury Tales in the 14th century. In The Canterbury Tales, Chaucer imagines a diverse band of pilgrims all making their way to Canterbury. Um, but before they set off on their journey, they meet at the Tabard Inn, a pub in London, and they decide, OK, we're all together, uh, and on our way to Canterbury, let's have a storytelling competition. You know, we've got a long way to go. Let's all tell stories to pass the time, and whoever can tell the best story will get a free meal at the Tabard Inn, the pub, when we complete our journey. Um, and Chaucer told, I think, 26 tales, um, he'd intended to tell many, many more. Um, and Chaucer did have died, basically, before the uh, tales were completed. But I think what the Canterbury Tales is, is kind of is most renowned for and most celebrated for is that it offers insights into, you know, medieval England dealing with problems of morality, of religion, of justice. And it's delivered in a very kind of humorous and bawdy and oftentimes kind of drunken and rude way. But nonetheless, it gives these very kind of almost he was he was an ethnographer of the time of the medieval ages. And I imagine, you know, Martin, he goes every day to visit the place where Chaucer's pilgrims were aiming for, you know, the shrine of Thomas Beckett. And when you go there, the volunteers from Canterbury Cathedral will often come over to you. They'll sit next to you and start telling you about the Canterbury Tales, about this kind of uh, imagined storytelling competition happening in the Middle Ages. And uh, I imagine Martin sitting there whilst also telling his own story. You know, he, he was making a film and telling his own story, his own Canterbury tale, which is just part of the everyday vernacular of lots of people in Canterbury, and as Nick rightly said, um, people who are rough sleeping. 
you know the, the that community as you can imagine is a is a bit of a rumor bill of different competing stories or versions of truth and people it's it's just inserted into everyday conversation oh it's another canterbury tale um so you know the idea of using the canterbury tales as the frame for our film um isn't something that nick and i have necessarily conceived i think that ultimately came from martin and when we go on to describe the circumstances of martin's death um we'll understand why perhaps this is um authentically a modern day contribution to um chaucerian literature i'll just jump in and, and add an additional part about the canterbury tales so if i'm not wrong as nick has mentioned uh, the Canterbury Tales and Chaucer's work, uh, for those who don't know, uh, is now regarded as high literature. But in its day, uh, as Joe mentioned, it was uh, literature for everyone, for the kinds of characters that appeared in his story, whether it's the miller or the chef, uh, or cook, I think as he calls it. And a key part of the film uh, is that it brings that strangeness that normally in anthropology or historically in anthropology is kind of something that happens in other places in other people's lives. And instead you start to see that Canterbury is alive almost in an animistic sense that this place has a mythology that's telling you something about uh, the landscape. And this is not just uh, a piece of literature that has now been kind of co-opted by a certain class of people. It's actually a piece of mythology that's telling you about the different stories and different people in those places and lives on, uh, as as Nick has noted, amongst different people in that area from whatever class uh, they are from. So it's a kind of, as someone, one of the audience members once said, the the powerfulness in the film and what also attracted me to to thinking about the first episode is that things that are normally strange so maybe someone that's homeless become quite familiar and you realise that there are other human beings going through uh, different challenges that you might face. But at the same time, they make something quite familiar. This kind of tourist site that you might see on a picture becomes quite strange and lots of weird things that might not necessarily rationally make sense start to occur. And so you start to finally feel this part of England starts to come alive and it's no longer uh, a dead landscape. Yeah, very much. No, I agree, mate. And uh, it's, as you say, it's it's very funny that it's almost as if the place itself um, breeds like uh, the the Canterbury Tales uh, and a continuation of. And um, yeah, this is not a piece uh, that's stuck in the fourteenth century. It's still very much going on, and the tales are still being told. And you know, and it's uh, yeah a classless thing uh that's uh you know everybody's got a canterbury tale if you if you spend any time there you will get your own canterbury tale you know it's uh it's almost a guarantee <laughs> it's funny about that that's all and that's where we're going to leave it off for this episode thank you so much to joe nick and avi for coming on and you can check out the rest of the conversation next month in December. Don't forget, if you'd like to check out the documentary for yourself, you can email fromthecubby at gmail.com, and they will send you a link and a code to be able to watch it online. 
From the cold, dark November of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophie Hagel on the Alba, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.